Well, good morning, Saltbox, and welcome, as has already been extended, to all of you on our um, online venue or community. Uh, we're so excited to be able to gather, at least in this forum, even though we're not able to gather personally as we once had, but that will happen, we believe, certainly in God's timing. Well, Pastor Michael has been uh, sharing with us what he calls a series of talks on defining moments. And it is my desire to um, continue one of those talks this morning. And uh, I'd simply ask a rhetorical question to start. What defines your life? Well, Defining moments or experiences that define us or mark us often for the rest of our lives. They make us who we are. They contribute heavily to how we see life, how we orient around life. These defining moments actually uh, enable us to uh, react to circumstances or situations, and they also um, influence how we react to people. I want to begin this morning with a scripture that is familiar to many of you. It's in the Gospel of John, and it's a conversation that Jesus had with a man by the name of Nicodemus. We'll talk about him for just a moment, but let me pause and read here a scripture, if I may. Maybe the first eight verses of John chapter three. Uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus looked at Nicodemus and answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you were born again, born anew from the spirit from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him in true rabbinic fashion, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born and Jesus answered him again, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you cannot tell where it is going or from where it comes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus, as you probably know, was a ruler of Israel. He was a leader. Uh, a verse that I did not uh, read uh, down in verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel? He was a teacher 
of Israel, which is to say he was a learned individual. He was intelligent. He was a keeper of all of the minutia of the Mosaic law. Uh, certainly in his life, he had many personal um, accomplishments. He was a Pharisee, as we read in, first, in the verse uh, one of chapter three. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, sort of the ruling council, if you will, the, uh, the high court of the land. And in spite of all of his accomplishments, in spite of all of his great learning and intellectual prowess, one thing he lacked, and that was what Jesus said to him, he needed to be born again from above by the Spirit. In terms of defining moments, that's what we're talking about this morning. What defines a person really? What is it that sets an individual apart from all of the rest of the people, if you will, in the herd? Jesus tells Nicodemus about what I would call a quintessential defining moment, and that is he needed to be born again. It's a new beginning. It's, it's being born again, though you've already been born once by the, the, a mother and a father and their volition, this birth is actually a spiritual beginning. It's being born by the Spirit into relationship with Jesus, and that's what Nicodemus lacked. That is what creates a radical shift in an individual. It is being this spiritual birth that is required, in the words of Jesus, in order to see the kingdom of God, to even be aware of it, or to enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God rules. It's the kingdom, the domain of the king. And what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is that if he is going to be a teacher of Israel, a learned person, he needs a defining moment that would set him apart, a spiritual new beginning, a birth, if you will, is required in order to see. It's a radical departure from the old way of living. And it brings us under the new management of the king, where the kingdom of God is then seen and entered. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's the, it's the domain of God. And what Nicodemus needed, in, in addition to all of his external uh, and religious involvement, he needed to come under the kingdom, the domain of the king, and allow that king, the King Jesus, by the Spirit to be birthed in his life. And I would suggest to you that that is something that each one of us are required in the words of Jesus. It is therefore the quintessential defining moment. Now, when a person experiences a new beginning, a new spiritual birth, a number of things happen, and it's those number of things that I want to allude to here this morning and the remaining time that we have together. When the Spirit works something in the heart of an individual, it is what Jesus calls a new birth. It's being born from above by the Spirit, which is to say it's not of your own making. What you make of yourself is often from the flesh. What God makes of us is by the Spirit. 
And the first thing that happens when this spiritual new beginning happens in our life is that he, God, releases the love for God into our heart. Now, remember that love doesn't begin with us. Love actually comes to us. As we were worshiping this morning, I just couldn't help hearing again how God loves you and me, how he loves us, what he's done for us. And it's that love for God, which is actually our response to his love for us. It's, uh, in fact, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, ties um, our ability to love uh, to this new birth that Jesus was talking about um, to Nicodemus. I'm referencing 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, which says this. Listen to the words very carefully. Everyone who loves has been born of God. See, born anew from above by the Spirit. And he who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, there are three places in the scripture where it says God is specifically something. In John chapter four, the scripture says God is spirit. Uh, another text, in, it says that God is light in 1 John, and in him is no darkness at all. In this text, in John chapter 4, it says God is love. And what happens is that when an individual comes by the Spirit into relationship to Jesus, all of a sudden, the love of God begins to be birthed in his heart. Can you remember before you came into experience the person of Jesus, the love of God was sort of a foreign entity. It was for me at least. I was going about doing my own life, making sort of a mess with it to be sure. Uh, but then God, by his spirit, intervened and brought me into relationship with himself and all of a sudden things began to change. That's why the scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. And the first thing that begins to change is all of a sudden you recognize that there's a love for God in response to his great love for us. 1 John chapter 3, uh, 16 says, by this we know love because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. You see, when you begin to see with the help of the Spirit who has birthed you, what Jesus has done for you, it begins to transform our life. 1 John 4, 19 says we love him because he first loved us. You see, it's that, that, that form of, of love that God plants in our heart that makes the difference. Now, this is important as a defining moment, particularly in the time period that we're living. We'll look at this a little more fully in just a couple of moments, but it's easy to be distracted from what is the highest priority, to express our love for God in response to his love for us and to share that love with other people. As Pastor Michael prayed earlier or said earlier, uh, who are different from us. First uh, John 4.10 says, this is love, not that we love God, we didn't bring our love for God to the table to negotiate with him, but he loved us and sent his son 
to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He covered our sin as Daniel sang this morning. It was by the sacrifice of his blood that he did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. It's this love based upon what he did for us that makes all of the difference. He covered our sin and by virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus, not only did he cover our sin, but he actually, by the covering of that blood sacrifice, turned away his, God's, just wrath because of our sin. See, you and I deserve death. But Jesus, through his sacrifice, gives us life because of his immense love that he has for us. I guess maybe that's why in the third chapter of the little letter of 1 John, it says, behold. <laughs> it's like, get a hold of this. What manner of love that the Father has given unto us that now we should be called his, called his children. You see, not only did he love us so much that he, the Father, sent his son to die for us, uh, but he turned his wrath from us that we deserved and now called us his children. No longer are we orphaned. No longer are we just his servants or his slaves to, to do all of the law as Nicodemus was trying to do in his own steam. No, rather, God has made us children and, and brought us out of darkness and into relationship with himself. That's the great news that we get to listen about this morning. We begin to look at his word. See, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were still dead in our sin, while we are, were weak and unable to do anything of spiritual value, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know where you are this morning in your own relationship with God, where you are on the journey of coming into uh, the fullness of relationship with him. But I do want you to understand one thing, and that is there's nothing you can do to get you any closer to God rather than to simply respond to what he has already done for you by giving his son Jesus on a cross for you. Romans 5, 5, again, the language is somewhat singular from John chapter three. It says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Nicodemus, you need to be born again by the Spirit from above. And when a person is born of the Spirit, something begins to happen. It's a cataclysmic shaking of, with personal implications by which an individual is transformed from what they were into what God is making them to be. And it's often the love of God that actually uh, makes the difference in our lives. God is love. His presence, when we're born of the Spirit, is in us. His nature, God is love, now abides within us and lives within us, which is to say we are capable of love. If you're in relationship with Jesus this morning, I don't care how difficult a set of circumstances you might be living in, you are capable of loving. 
You are able, enabled, I should say, by the Spirit to love people even when times are difficult. But let me end this little section of God's love being implanted in our hearts by a real scary text. And it's Matthew 24, 12, and Jesus was teaching on the latter times. And he says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. You see, Jesus, to be sure, releases his love into our heart, but we have the choice to walk in that love or not. You see, in the midst of pandemic isolation and the pain that can happen in the midst of all of what I would simply call craziness in the time in which we live, in the midst of political hate rhetoric, in the midst of racial prejudice from every corner, it seems, in the midst of police brutality at times, in the midst of mass shootings, character assassinations, I need not go on, but God has given us the capacity to love even in these great times that we're in. Love is the greatest power on the face of the earth. And love is given to us, released in our heart by the Spirit through a new birth. Well, my little mom, Jenny Mattis, uh, my son, Pastor Michael, shared last night on a family, we have a family uh, text where it goes out to all of our family members. And evidently they were cooking in a crock pot and Michael was cleaning up the crock pot and happened to turn it over and sent a picture out on our family text message and it said Jenny Mattis, it was her crock pot. And he mentioned in the text the saying that she used to say and that is that God has reduced me to love. You know, and I used to think that was kind of corny. You know, well, God has reduced me to love. My mother wasn't um, highly educated. She, she wasn't a, a number of things that the world would uh, see as accolades. But one thing she was, she had the capacity to love. You see, your words are important is one of the sub-points of this. If, when, if and when God births us into his kingdom by his spirit enabling us uh, to love, then it's important that we choose to love even in difficult circumstances. So your words are important. Did you know your attitudes are important as well? Facial expressions are important. Actions, the things that you do are important as well. Love covers a multitude of error and sin our own, and certainly that of other people. So the first thing this defining moment of a new birth had for Nicodemus is that he brought us out, he brought, was brought out of simply a, a, a rigid exterior, external uh, performance orientation by keeping the Mosaic law, and he was brought into a place where he began to love God, I believe, with all of his heart, with all of his mind, soul, and strength. The second thing that happens is that we are enabled to become dependent upon God. You see, not only 
do we have love for God because of God's great love for us, but we then become dependent upon him. John 15, Cynthia was sharing with our salt box kids about this relationship between uh, the vine and the branches. And Jesus in verse four said, abide in me and I in you. You see, it's relationship that God is after. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. That's interesting. Abide simply means to rest in. It means, well, just to stay attached. It means to remain in him. You see, the vine doesn't struggle, or the, the branch, I should say, doesn't struggle to bear fruit. It simply stays attached and fruit happens. It should be a bumper sticker. Fruit happens. <laughs> you see, in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. But did you know that the opposite of depending upon Jesus, remaining in Jesus, abiding in Jesus is really depending upon yourself. And as I look across America at the church at large, and as I even examine my own life at times, I realize that self-sufficiency is, is all too prevalent. The opposite of depending on Jesus is depending on yourself, self-sufficiency. You see, independence or is really a form of self-pride. I can do it myself. And yet trusting self rather than trusting God, according to Jesus in John chapter 15, is the prescription for fruitlessness. But let me simply say that when I find myself in self-sufficiency and independent and I think I can do it better by myself, God never shames me. God never condemns me. God never abandons us when we are in our self, in our flesh, living according to what we think is best. No, God simply invites us to come and abide and trust in him again. Isn't, aren't you glad God doesn't scold you? He's not like an angry father who's wanting to straighten you out. No, he sent Jesus to come to set you free from self-orientation, to begin to love God from your heart because he first loved us and to begin to depend upon him even when you think you know better. You come to the place over time where you recognize that, you know, I really don't know better. Apart from him, he says I can do nothing. Well, if you're in a place this morning and if you're like me, you really know when you're living in independence, when you're living in self-sufficiency or pride, what, what can you do? Well, the first thing, simply acknowledge it before God. He's aware of it anyway. Uh, acknowledge the tendency towards self-sufficiency. And acknowledging it before God is simply agreeing with what he already knows. That's what this biblical word calls confession. You simply confess, God, I'm living in independence. And I'm real sorry. And you ask him for his help to assist you to begin to live in him, in the vine. Tell him you can't do whatever it is. And you know what? God understands 
you could never do it anyway. That's why he said it's important that you abide in me and I in you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this radical new lifestyle, this defining moment, this new birth that Jesus is talking about uh, with Nicodemus has a third point. The first one is God implants his love in our heart for him in response to God's love for us. The second one is that he enables us to become dependent upon God, living in Christ, abiding in him, remaining in him, and getting back into that vital connection when we stray. And thirdly, he compels us to become obedient to God. He compels us toward obedience, love for God, dependence upon God, and obedience to God. John 15, seven, Jesus said, this is my commandment. I'll notice he didn't say, this is really a suggestion that y'all need to think about and take to heart. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another. How do we do that? In the same way I have loved you. You see, the love of God is sacrificial. It's unrelenting. It never gives up. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, verse 35 says of, of that text, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now let me just sort of unpack that for just a minute. This is not a command to love people who are like us. This is not a command to love people whom you like. This is not a command to love people who happen to like you for whatever reason. No, this is a command to love people even who believe differently than you believe. I am sometimes appalled at my own smallness of spirit when I'm left to my flesh. And God always draws me back from, to his vantage point about people. This is my command that you love one another. I think of Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, when a pompous lawyer came to Jesus and said, okay, what's the greatest commandment? And you remember Jesus' response. He said, love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And though he wasn't asked about the second, he said the second is like it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. Because you can't love God whom you have not physically seen if you're not loving the people around you that you have seen. The people who are different politically. People who are different racially. People who are different politically. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. The hate speech, I'm appalled at Christians sometimes of how they exude hatred because people believe differently than they believe. Brothers and sisters, those who are in Jesus, that ought not be the case. You see, 
We need to treat people the way we want to be treated. That's novel, isn't it? (laughs) We want to speak to people the way we want people to speak to us. Go out of your way to do something this week for someone maybe in your neighborhood. Two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, Pastor Michael uh, shared an encouragement uh, to do something by which we would begin to understand um, people of a different color from us by virtue of asking them questions and listening to their story. Now, my wife, whose name is Cynthia, here this morning, a couple of weeks ago, went out to two different men of color in our neighborhood. One was African-American, and the other one was Jamaican-American. And she asked them, you know, we're the neighbors that live up the street. We, we, you know, we say hi as we drive by, uh, but that's about the relationship that we have. But she asked them how they were doing in the midst of this racial tension and unrest that was happening. And then she simply listened to their story. She listened and she learned. Uh, she, she, she made a friend. She made two friends. A few days later, or a week later, I guess it was, we had the opportunity to be out in the, in the uh, yellow truck coffee company, and we were giving coffee out and some donuts to another church. And we had some coffee left over and we took one of the, I guess they're called crafts, one of those pumpy pots, you know, back home and heated it up. And the first thing she did is she took coffee down to those neighbors. And again, they were sort of blown away and stunned. Jesus said something about giving a cup of cold water in my name. It doesn't, to love people, to depend upon the vine, To obey Jesus in loving people around us doesn't have to be complicated. It can be very simple. But the bottom line to those two stories that I stole from her is that they felt encouraged. They felt affirmed. They felt valued. They felt listened to. And now I can't say where the relationship is going, but I know that there's something there that's very different. And when I see him on the street, I say, hey, I'm Cynthia's husband. <laughs> I'm right in there because they've, um, they understand something about us because we understand something about them. God is doing something fresh in our hearts and it's a defining moment. And what Jesus said would define a man or a woman most is to when God by his spirit comes and takes up residence in our heart, releasing us to love him because he first loved us, to depend then upon Jesus, his one and only sacrifice with whom we have relationship, and then finally to obey him and do what he tells us to do. Maybe you're here today and you just, well, you're just, you feel like you're on the edge, you're a little bit removed. I simply wanna say to you that you don't have to do anything to fix that other than simply come as you are to Jesus. He won't scold you, he won't scorn you, he won't shame you, he'll always simply embrace you 
because of the enormous love that he has for us.